Hello and welcome. This is Sarah Chipo, host of the SideWoo podcast. And as you may know, this is an off week. So I wanted to take the opportunity to share another project that I'm working on. It is my Substack called Art Date, which I have talked about before on the, the intros. But within that newsletter, I do a series called Free Agent, and I send out a free agent post once a month or so. And the purpose of the series is to interview artists, writers, musicians, and other creative people who have gone a direction in their career that is kind of outside the traditional model of that industry. So for writers, it's writers who maybe haven't worked with a a more mainstream publishing house. One of our first interviews was an interview with my friend, Andrea Watkins, who ended up self-publishing her second book. And it ended up doing so well with her, you know, homegrown marketing plan that she ended up in the, the New York Times bestseller list. So something like that, or another interview I did is with an artist who after working with a gallery and not really seeing the the payoff in terms of the amount of work he produced and, and not feeling like the gallery relationship was working for him anymore, decided to leave his galleries and just announced to his Instagram that he would be only selling directly from his Instagram and web store. So, you know, more than thinking, oh, this is good, this is bad. I'm just really curious, like, how is this working for people? Does this open up new pathways for us as artists, as writers, as creative people who are trying to make it in this capitalist society and, you know, wanting to have our work valued and respected, but maybe there are ways to think outside the box that create more opportunities for everyone. So this week, the interview is with a former SideWoo podcast guest, Nicole Miller, who is a podcast host in her own right. And she is co-host of the Beyond the Studio podcast with Amanda Adams. And I've also been on their show, which I talk about in the Substack post. I wrote about it. But yeah, she is very entrepreneurial, has always made opportunities happen for herself if she didn't have them immediately coming to her. And, and she was able to take her interest in large-scale public art mosaic pieces and ended up getting a commission and spent the last year producing this mosaic by hand. And traditionally, mosaics for public art are produced through fabricators. And I just found it so impressive that she would kind of, one, get the opportunity after putting her mind to it, and then two, like do it all herself. And so I wanted to find out how that went and what she learned from it and you know, why would you do that? So I really, it's a great conversation, which is why I'm wanting to share it here. I hope you enjoy it. I will be back next week with the SideWoo regular programming. But in the meantime, I wanted to invite you over to Substack. For the rest of the month, I'm doing a promotion where all of my free agent content will be totally available and free to everyone. It is typically content for paid subscribers only. So starting October 1st, it will be back to paid content. And if you want to support the podcast and have access to that content later on, you are welcome to subscribe for $5 a month or $60 a year. Or your other option is I'm also on Medium. And so paid subscribers to Medium can follow me and read all my stories there. 
And I think, you know, as a member, you have access to unlimited content on the entire website of Medium, which, you know, depending on what you want, that's maybe a great deal for you. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you on Substack and also next week for our next episode of The Side Woo. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, we've had some technical difficulties. I feel like that's like the norm. You know, it's not even worth mentioning almost because like one video <laughs> chat does not have that. Um, but thank you so much, Nicole, for being here at Free Agent in interview series with artists and writers to hear about kind of their career journey and like how they've navigated the various institutional roadblocks um, that you might face as a creative person. But um, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about yourself. This is Nicole Miller, um, artist and podcast in the Bay Area. We are both in San Francisco right now. Um, but yeah. Yeah, totally. Thanks for the invitation. These are like my favorite topics to talk about. So I'm really excited for this conversation. And um, yeah, I'm Nicole Muller. I, I live in San Francisco. Like you said, I'm a visual artist, primarily a painter, um, and also interested in the world of expanded painting. So I've been um, taking on some more public projects recently, thinking about how um, painting as a medium and idea can be translated into different materials. And I really um, love this idea of painting as sort of personal visual language and um, really love color and psychology and how all of these things can kind of come together in um, uh, abstract painting, um, which is what I do and tend to work very large scale um, on paintings in the studio as well as installation-based work for various projects. Is it possible to do a quick pan of your studio or would that- Oh, sure. And yeah, this is exciting. I actually do a lot of recording from home. So this is kind of a new, uh, we got the tripod oh, going here. Oh, cool. So we got Ooh, some works in progress. Fun. Yeah, you're not supposed to see that actually, but it's okay. We'll do it okay. for the viewers. Well, this will be a couple weeks down the road. So hopefully by then you'll be ready to share. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, we're gonna have some secret projects. Sorry for the trash can. Um, all right, there we go. Real view of the studio. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and so um, for viewers, I was just there because you were finishing up a giant mosaic project um, Yeah. that I do want to talk about and um, I'll include some images of it when, or like maybe you can send me some too in the post that I have this sure. part of this. But um, I wanted to first kind of talk about just in general, like as a visual artist, I feel like from the outside, I've seen you navigate your career and it feels like you are as successful, if not more, being a artist who sells like from your studio or creating these like larger opportunities for yourself where you're not necessarily trying to like navigate the art market in the traditional way and maybe you can talk a little bit about that sure thanks yeah it's always interesting to hear what the what an outside perception is like from I, I don't know I guess like being on the inside of it it doesn't necessarily feel as if this was some sort of alternative route that I've chosen but what I would say is that I've 
felt like some of those more traditional rungs of the ladder seemed a little bit less accessible. Um, and something else that has been a primary goal of mine for a really long time is to build a life and career as an artist that is sustainable and one that um, where my practice is able to financially support me. And so I think being clear about that being a goal for a really long time has eventually, you know, over the course of a number of years started to lead into some bigger projects. So it's not as if I'm kind of uninterested in engaging with the more traditional art world or art market. I mean, I'm yeah. certainly interested in working with galleries to build visibility and context for the work, but I also- You're available for uh, opportunities, in other words. Sure, sure, yeah, <laughs> for sure. But I think um, I, I did have a, I think, an understanding that the sort of um, markers of art world success or like reaching a certain level of visibility with your work didn't necessarily translate into financial stability. And so that was something that I yeah. was really clear that I wanted to um, prioritize with the work. And I think that's what's led me to pursuing other projects and um, really thinking about how I can, you know, be able to make the work that I want to make and um, take on these ambitious projects, but also so that the practice can be self-sustaining. Yeah. I mean, not to like throw off your momentum, but I really think that's a myth that getting press will equate to financial gain. I don't, or like any kind of like, you know, number of followers, like it doesn't automatically translate like one-to-one. -one. I don't know if in your experience, like if like for your podcast or anything, you guys have gotten attention that has actually translated to money. But in my personal experience, usually media translates to more opportunities that may get money, but it's not like an immediate, like the sales come like flooding in or, you know. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's something that just kind of organically happens. I think that, you know, wh whatever you are striving for, whether it is that financial stability or whether it's more visibility or more press or more opportunities, I think that you can get there, but it takes, you know, being really proactive. And I think just being clear about those things, they're not necessarily connected. They certainly can be, um, you know, obviously there are really established artists working at a high level who are creating work full-time and their, you know, work is yeah. highly visible in the art world. So it's, it's not as if those intersections don't exist, but I think for emerging artists, it is one of those myths that, you know, if I just work hard enough and I just get the right gallery representation or just get enough press or visibility, then like these other problems are just going to dissipate or like the money will follow. And so I think really being clear of about what your goals are in the beginning can save you from a lot of heartbreak when you feel like you're hustling and working really hard and it's just not, you know, materializing in the way that you hoped. Yeah. And um, I mean, and like on that note, like you really do seem to hustle and find ways to fund your projects. Like one of the first things that you were working on when I met you was this giant mural in the dog patch that was up like temporarily kind of off of third street, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I remember you getting it funded and, or like that you got all the paints donated by the company was, is that right? Yeah. I mean, um, 
I, I guess like hard work is obviously a prerequisite. I think every artist knows the hustle of juggling multiple jobs and totally. working on the weekends and, you know, nights just trying to squeeze in whatever studio time you can. So um, I feel like those are uh, in some ways necessary stepping stones to get to whatever those larger goals are. And so in the beginning, sometimes it is taking on projects that um, will hopefully lead into other things, even if you don't know what they are. And I knew that I wanted to do larger scale work and start translating some of the paintings I was making in the studio into the realm or at the scale of mural painting. And mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily have the work in my portfolio to show for it when I moved out to San Francisco. So initially I was just looking for opportunities that would kind of allow me to build that experience. And I yeah. had found a wall in Dogpatch, the neighborhood that I live. And um, it was uh, on Nextdoor, that app um, that was kind of looking for a mural and the building was slated for demolition. So it was really low stakes. And uh, conveniently in Dogpatch, there is a hardware store, a paint supply store, and at the time an equipment rental. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went around to local businesses and shared the plans or the idea for this mural that I wanted to do and was able to get all of the paints um, donated, all of the supplies to paint the mural and a scissor lift loaned out for like a month. That's and insane. obviously I was volunteering my time, but yeah, it just really showed me the generosity of the community and that when you, you know, apply a certain level of creativity to your career and opportunities, you can make really big projects happen, um, even if you don't have a big budget to start with. Yeah, I agree with that. Like having um, like co-hosted the painting salon for a long time. And, you know, when you apply for grants like the Southern Exposure Alternative Exposure Grant, um, one of the things you do is like put in what the in-kind donations were, you know, to mm, yeah. it. and I remember being like totally blown away once I added up all the time and money that people kind of have contributed or like resources that translated to money. And it was like tens of thousands of dollars, you know, if, if I had been going through like a monetary channel. And so I think that's a really good point is like, you may not get directly compensated all the time but then if you think about like what people are giving you in order to like do the thing that you love and you get to contribute and you know you're building your portfolio and everything I think that's like such a great way of looking at it and um I don't know and you got to do something you loved which is really cool uh, so yeah I don't know yeah and artists are incredibly resourceful you know we um what we sometimes lack in like financial resources, I think we make up for in social capital and creative mm -hmm. capital and, you know, having other skills to share with one another, having resources like space or materials. I mean, there are a lot of things that we can both contribute to the community around us um, as well as receive. And so I think just kind of opening up our mind a little bit on what that exchange can look like can, you know, be uh, a way of finding support for things that otherwise may have seemed like they were out of reach. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like the social capital of the artist, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily pay the rent, but it can go a long way. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah, then kind of thinking about like, I guess I do want to get to your 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 like your mosaic so maybe we can just talk briefly about that like 
Um, again, I'm going to include photos. It's like this beautiful, huge scale mosaic that normally when an artist will do like a large mosaic, like in the airport or something, they'll have the company like fabricate it completely and probably won't be so involved with like the individual tiling is my understanding. And you kind of took on the project where I'm going to do it all myself kind of energy. Um, so maybe you could just talk about that and as well as your concept um, behind the project. Yeah, this project was such an exciting opportunity for me to really expand into spatial design. And this was mosaic was part of a public art project um, based in Tempe, Arizona that I'm getting ready to install in about a week. Okay. Uh, and it's been over a year in the making now. And uh, it's for a public park and recreation center. And so I proposed a series of artworks that would help connect the interior and exterior of the space uh, through a large mosaic that kind of leads you into the building and then a series of kiln formed glass pieces on the interior uh, through a set of skylights and then um, some reception area windows. And so I was really thinking about the entire site as one cohesive artwork. And I think I've always been really inspired by painters that have expanded into spatial design like Ellsworth Kelly with his Chapel Austin and Matisse's Chapelle du Rosaire. And um, I think these artists have been really influential for me in the way that I think about painting as being really expansive and not necessarily limited to works on a canvas. And so uh, for me, the chance to work in new materials like mosaic and glass and think about how my how my paintings would translate into those materials was um, really, really exciting. And so this is the most ambitious project that I've taken on. And part of the appeal, I think, with working in a new medium was getting to learn that process. And because my paintings are so process-based and it's so much about the artist's hand and that kind of um, like intuitive, physical feeling of like translating, you know, marks onto a canvas, I really didn't want to outsource or hand off that part of the process with this piece. And so with the glassworks, we are working with a local fabricator um, because that's not something that I have experience in or can fabricate myself. But um, with the mosaic, it really was a, a chance to learn a new material. So I, I knew I wanted to be able to fabricate the piece myself. And I did have the help of a couple of studio assistants here over the summer, um, but we fabricated the entire piece by hand. Uh, it's about a 750 square foot mosaic. So it's fairly large scale and it's taken the last six months or so um, of kind of dedicated time in the studio to complete, but yeah. I'm really excited to see it installed. And it's the the largest permanent public project that I've worked on. So I think um, it's also been a stepping stone into the world of public art and yeah. um, kind of being able to use some, you know, past projects to lead into this one. Yeah, well, and like what struck me being in person is just, how much detail goes into the mosaic because like you know you'll have these kind of brush strokes of color that are sections of like certain tile like each brush stroke is kind of made up of you know maybe one or two types of tile but then within each kind of section of color you know you have different sizes and the shapes have to kind of correspond and like if you had a bigger tile that you wanted to be kind of broken you had to like break it by hand which just kind of blew my mind, like thinking about how 
I don't know, all the, the effort and the consideration that would go into like even just one, you know, two by two foot section. So, um, yeah, it was very like kind of viscerally impressive, like seeing it in person. So I'm excited to kind of Thanks. have it be in the world. Cause I just was so impressed with that. Um, and then I was wondering if you could show that little glass piece that you showed me, it's like in the corner of your studio that you're going to be using as like a oh. for the skylight. Would you be okay with that? Yeah, totally. I'll yeah. be right back. Maybe Sorry. Since we have video, you know, we can do <laughs> not totally. to make you run around. Yeah, so this was a sample um, for some of the glass pieces on the interior, which we actually didn't end up using, um, but it's a pretty similar color palette. So yeah. this is an example of um, once you cross over the mosaic uh, inside of the building, there's a few areas of transparent colored kiln formed glass. So it's essentially like a kind of contemporary form of stained glass. And I knew that we really wanted this area to be about color. And because the light is so dramatic and intense in Arizona um, to really allow the natural light to, to shine through as like a, um, you know, core part of uh, like key ingredient to the work. So just kind of activating that with color throughout the space. And as you enter the building and travel down this long, narrow hallway, there's a series of skylights that I wanted to kind of mimic the tones or create some kind of a gradient like uh, the sunsets in Arizona. And so um, the color palette moves from this kind of teal to marigold. Uh, over five separate windows. Um, so this was a sample that we had made by Meltdown Glass as the fabricator in Tempe. Um, and the material that we're using is bullseye glass, which is really beautiful and painterly and can be kind of combined and layered in the same way that you would mix um, colors in a palette. And so yeah. this is one of the pieces that um, That's we so made cool. for the skylight. And bullseye is in the Bay Area as well as New York. Is that right? Yeah, they're based in Portland, Oregon, actually, oh, okay. and they do um, fabrication themselves for projects, um, mm -hmm. but they also source material for all kinds of other public projects. And they have a resource center um, here in the Bay Area in Emeryville. Uh, that's really amazing. And I was able to look at some samples there. And yeah. I think they have a few other locations around the country, too. Okay. Um, what do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned from taking this on yourself? Oh, my gosh. Um just how collaborative the public art process is. Um, I think even as a, a studio artist that's kind of like stepped into the world of public art where I would say that, you know, my work is primarily driven by um, this kind of like personal visual language and seeing that translated into different mediums or at different scales. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that my work is uh, inherently connected to like social practice or very like community driven, you know, I, I, I yeah. tend to work pretty independently in the studio, but I think just by nature of creating work for a specific environment or for a specific community, um, the process becomes a lot more collaborative and also just working with other partners and fabricators. I mean, with this project, it's, you know, the public art managers for the city of Tempe, the main construction team on the project, 
the architecture studio that designed the building, the landscape architects that are responsible for everything around the building, right. um, the concrete installers that are installing the mosaic, the glass fabricators. There's just so many different teams involved. And so actually, I think that past experiences I've had outside of the arts, working other day jobs um, within arts administration and higher education have been the most valuable in the public art process. Um, mm -hmm. So things like communication and project management, time management, I would say all of those skills are just as, if not more important than the ability, ability to just creatively execute a vision in the studio um, for projects like this. Oh yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, um, and then also managing a team to help you produce it, which seemed very intimate. You know, you're spending like eight hours a day with these two people in your studio and like trusting them to produce work with you. And um, yeah, that's interesting. There's this like emotional intelligence piece to it to know how to like navigate all the like kind of different styles of communication and everything between the vendors and yeah it's been a, a a growing experience in the best way because it has really forced me to step outside of my comfort zone again yeah. and again and you know work closely with other people and hire on studio assistants for the first time and all of these things that uh you know I didn't necessarily have experience in but I think having a project that really like necessitates that can really encourage you to um, take some risks or just, you know, to challenge yourself in different ways. So I'm really um, grateful to this project for that. Yeah, no, definitely. That seems, um, I would be very uncomfortable with all of the like moving pieces and variables. So that's, that's interesting to hear you say that. Um, I wanted to, before we go, talk about your podcast briefly called Beyond the Studio. And um, sure. I think in a lot of ways, it tackles some similar themes that I'm interested in, you know, talking with artists about, which is essentially like how to make a sustainable art career, you know, and does it have to look like what we're told it has to look like, you know, by the art newspaper or something, you know, like. Who, who's deciding like what the right art career looks like and how are people navigating it? And what does their life outside the studio look like to kind of accommodate the different challenges of the artist? So um, I'm curious, like, you know, you guys talk a lot about finances and you're really generous with your own finances, like both you and your co-host, Amanda Adams. Um, is there anything that you've learned that you feel like is like the key takeaway from all of your, you've done like three seasons now. Is there anything that you would say is like kind of a main theme or a, a takeaway from all of your interviews? Oh my gosh. There <laughs> are honestly so many things. Yeah. Let me think about That's what would be. That's not really a fair question. I realize. <laughs> I love it though, because I think, like something, and maybe this is kind of a cop-out, but I think just how individualized artists' careers really are has mm -hmm. been illuminating that, you know, every artist's career path does look really different and there are infinite ways to build a life and career. And so I think, you know, while there is no formula to 
building a career, I think that there is so much to be learned through sharing artist stories and just hearing from their own personal lived experiences. And I think the realization that our struggles and our challenges are not as unique as we might think is really reassuring and that, you know, there are other artists that have faced these before that have managed to, you know, figure things out. And um, some of the things that we've been talking about, I guess, just that, um, you know, the the visibility, the financial stability, the um, like the accolades, like these are all kind of separate uh, goals or things that are, you know, that they, they sometimes intersect, but they don't always necessarily. And so, I think um, like the artists, nice, but they don't pay the bills like accolades, even like awards, you know, they don't necessarily create financial stability. Yeah. And I think just that, you know, your career is a really like fluid and ever evolving thing. Like there's never this sort of stage where, I don't know, you feel like you've just made it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. um, not in a discouraging way, but just that like, you know, what I've noticed or what I've, I feel like what we've already, what we know to be true, but has been reinforced through the podcast is that artists are incredibly brilliant and resourceful and resilient. And we have all of these amazing creative skills. And so um, the artists that we've interviewed that are, you know, making a living full-time or that have just managed to sustain a practice for decades, which in and of itself is such a huge achievement, I think are the ones that are really um, open and curious and proactive about all aspects of their work and life, not just the work that they're making in the studio. Yeah. Um, and that there are ebbs and flows, you know, there are artists that I look up to as, you know, seeming really established or like they've had all these museum shows and done all these huge public projects. And then on interviewing them, come to find out that they, you know, had to take a step back from their art making for two years to care for a relative or something. And I think when you're going through those difficult periods yourself, it's easy to feel like your artistic identity is like being shaken. Like, am I even an artist if I'm not constantly producing work? And so I just think like all of these myths, like don't really do us any good and just, being a little bit kinder to ourselves, mm -hmm. um, knowing that, you know, whatever it is that we're striving for is possible and that, you know, there, there is a lot more within our control than outside of it. And that, you know, being, being proactive and, um, being clear about what our goals are cultivating community. I think we tend to gravitate towards artists that are kind of multifaceted, you know, there's not just one thing, um, yeah. which I guess is something else that there's, there's always a diversity of like income streams or um, just, you know, tend to be like a lot of different like rods in the fire or different forms of art making um, different types of communities. So I guess, I don't know, I'm a long, long winded answer just to answer your question. I think that there are so many different art worlds, like so many different subsets of the art world that, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, the, the one version that we might have learned or internalized through going to art school is not all that's out there and that there are so many different ways to make a living and a life in the arts. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I actually did hear that in art school during an artist lecture. It was like, can't remember if it was in Madison was Scott, like, I want to say it was in Madison, even at the very early stages of my art career. And I kind of didn't know enough then to even know what they meant. But I always thought like, 
oh, what does that mean? Like, is one better than the other? You know, like, I think I would still not totally buying into it because there's the one art world that like gets you in the art in the textbooks. And at the time I thought like, what's more important than being like footnoted in history, you know? Um, but I think having been outside of school now for a good amount of time, like, I don't even know if I care. Like, I don't know. Do you, do you talk to anyone who thinks about being in like an art history textbook anymore? It feels like such an outdated concept. Like, I think galleries yeah. about that. I don't know. Yeah, I honestly, through the conversations that we've had, this sort of like art world, art market that I think we're talking about is actually very, can feel and is very separate from most working artists lived experiences. And yeah. so maybe it's something they think about or engage with, but it is not their world. It's not the art world. And so yeah, I think that, is one of those things that is sort of out of your control. I don't think that we can decide for ourselves whether or not we're going to be written out in the history books. You know, I think we can just try and participate in a greater conversation through our work and through our community, but history is being rewritten all the time. Also, there are artists that were say. virtually unknown decades ago that now are getting visibility for their work. So I think that's one of those things that, you know, maybe, but I don't think it's a, a day-to-day concern for most artists that we talk to. Yeah. I mean, and just as you were saying that, I was thinking that there's so many other types of media out there now than like the traditional like art history text that there's so many other stories being told about artists and by artists that we didn't have maybe growing up. And I guess that's why like that textbook of like the history of art, you know, like really feels like such a um, like outdated mode of storytelling, I guess. And that's where like Katie Hessel's The History of Art Without Men like comes into play. It's like challenging the canon that we were brought up with. But then even beyond yeah. that, like, do we even need just the one history of art? You know, like, yes, it's helpful to understand where we came from, but like now I don't even know what we would say like about our current, like last 20 years. It's just been like a hot mess of people just trying to make work that helps, you know, us move forward, you know, consciously or, um, you know. Yeah, I think it's so much more expansive and just yeah. trying to- Multifaceted too, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess to wrap things up, is there anything that you're working on right now? You're getting back into the, the studio with your beautiful paintings, but you know, yeah, I'm about to head out to Arizona to install the mosaic for that public project. Uh, so I'm really excited to see that finally come to fruition these next few weeks. And I am working on some other painting projects right now. Um, and I'll be jumping into some as soon as I get back in September. So I'm really excited for the fall and just to get back into painting um, and to kind of get started on some new projects. So I'll have more to share in the next few months. Yeah. I find, find you on Instagram, I assume. And I don't, are you on TikTok? Yeah, no, I'm not on TikTok, <laughs> <laughs> but you can find me on Instagram. Cool. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And um, we'll post all the links in the um, essay 
on Substack and yeah, have a good one. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, this has been fun. Bye.